one of the uniquenesses of living down south in the New Orleans area was the total absence of basements. Basements did not exist. Now, there was a reason we used to tease that if you had a basement in your house in New Orleans, it was called an indoor swimming pool. And the reason why was the water table was just a foot and a half, two feet below the surface of the ground. And literally, during, when it would get rainy down there about this time of year, you could dig into the ground, you'd dig down a foot and a half, and you'd be hitting water. So we didn't have basements. But moving back up here, we have basements. In fact, one of the things that when we were looking for a house to buy is I wanted a basement. And uh, there's something that's unique about a basement. Basements are those places, especially if you have it kind of finished, where you send the kids. I've noticed that. You know, during, during life groups, small groups, when, when the groups are together and, and all the adults are up there and they're trying to do their study or they're trying to do their discussion or trying to have their prayer time, they'll say to the, you know, the children, you can go downstairs and play. And that works out fine. Until you begin to hear the level of commotion slowly rise. And the outcries and the noise and all the rest begins to elevate a little more and a little more and a little more. And then at some point, you may hear a blood-curdling scream or some kind of yell that is just tremendous. And about that time, one of the adults will get up, open up the basement door, look down, and say something like this. Don't make me come down there. Now, what's so interesting is every kid in the world understands what that means. It means keep going because they're not coming down. No, uh, But uh, <laughs> it is a cry to say something is going on. We need to stop or the adults are going to come down and intervene. What's so interesting is when you come to Genesis chapter 18, there's a very real sense in which God says that very thing. Where he has been looking at the turmoil that has been going on in the world, and particularly in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll look at that next week when we come to Genesis chapter 19. And the commotion, the tumult, the outcry, as it is translated in a lot of the English versions, but the idea is just the noise of what is taking place has become so great that God says, I'm coming down there. I'm going to deal with it. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, particularly beginning in chapter 12, and we'll continue through the life of Abraham. And the theme of that entire section is Moses is writing out and preparing the people as they're about to enter into the promised land. And we need to keep that in mind because that is one of the major reasons why Moses is penning this, is to prepare the people, to get them ready as they are moving into the land, as they are coming out of Egypt, surrounded by this polytheistic culture, and moving now into their own land, becoming their own nation, 
with God as their God. And in the process, what Moses is doing is trying to teach them, what does it mean to live by faith as people of a covenant relationship with God? And so as you work through the life of Abraham, we keep moving back and forth between those themes. As someone responds with faith, and trust in the promises and the covenant of God. And as a result, something takes place and, and they enjoy the covenant. And as they walk in faithfulness, they enjoy the fullness of the covenant that God has made with Abraham because of his faith, in response to his faith. And then we see faithlessness. How God deals with those who choose to walk in opposition to him. For Abraham, it is a struggle within the covenant, within the relationship. But when we come to Acts, yeah, right. When we come to Genesis chapter 18 and then 19, God exposes to Abraham what he does in the face of complete wickedness and evil. What does God do? How does God respond? How does he respond to those who are ultimately faithless as they live out their life, as they live out the culture? Now, I'm not going to take this morning and even next week to bash our culture and to attack all the things. We'll, we'll look at what it means to be godless and how that works itself out, particularly next week. But the focus here is not upon the evil of the society. It's upon the greatness of our God. And that's the focus of Genesis chapter 18. That's the focus of Genesis chapter 19. This incredible God. And yes, even in the midst of judgment, this incredible, merciful, gracious God that we serve. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 18. And the primary theme in this section, in this final verses of Genesis chapter 18, is on God's justice. And what we are proclaimed in this passage, what what Moses proclaims to us, what the life of Abraham proclaims as God interacts with them is this, that our just God allows the presence of his people to preserve their society. When we come to the end of this, when we come to the end of Genesis chapter 18, the failure is not Sodom and Gomorrah's alone. The failure was God's people and what they failed to do. Now, as you begin to read through Genesis chapter 18, you remember that God has come and he's visited Abraham and he's visited Sarah and he's come and he's told them that that promise that took place 25 years ago will now be fulfilled within the year. And Sarah, even though she's 90 years old, she's going to have a baby and she's going to bring forth a son and they're going to name his name Isaac, which means laughter because everyone laughs whenever they hear that a 90-year-old is pregnant. You would too.
But as you continue to read through and as you read, come to verse 16, these three visitors, one being the Lord and the other two being um, angelic beings, as it seems, particularly as you go into Genesis 19, they get up to leave, and they're about now what they, one of the other main reasons they came, and that was to find out what's been going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Beginning in chapter 18, verse 16, the theme is God's justice. And that God is just in all of his judgments. Now, as you begin to work through this, there's a question. And the question is raised because of this event. As God comes and says to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah is going to have a baby at age 90. And before I come back, I will visit upon her before the end of the year. I will visit upon her and she will deliver a baby. And you're going to call him Isaac because Sarah was giggling inside of herself when she heard the message. And then in that context, Moses gives to us the theme of those first 15 verses. And that is this, is anything too hard for God? And the answer is no. Nothing is too hard for God. We use the word omnipotent, meaning God has the power to accomplish anything that he purposes and wills. That's a pretty strong God. But that kind of power is terrifying. That kind of power is frightening. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way. It is an awesome, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so the question becomes, okay, God is powerful. He can accomplish anything he wills and chooses to do. So the question becomes, is he good? Is he just? Can you trust him? All of this incredible power. Can we trust that God is good and just? And so that question is on the mind of the reader as they come into Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. And as you're reading through and they're beginning to leave and all of the rest, and I'm going to take these passages a little bit out of order because the theme of chapter 16, those first 15 verses, is God is huge. He's massive. He's awesome. He can do whatever he wants. But the theme of the next section is found in verse 20. It says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, Now, 21 astounds us that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, as you begin to read through, there are a couple of observations we need to make. First of all, God is fully aware of the evil that's taking place. Have you ever wondered if God knows what's going on? Have you ever wondered if God knows exactly how bad it really is? 
at the graduation last week, the story was told of the 20-some Christians that were slaughtered by ISIS about a year or so ago. As they had them kneel there on the, the beach and they, they killed each one of them. The story was told that the last man was not really a believer. And ISIS assumed that when they got to him and were going to kill him, that he would say, I, 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 I reject this. I, I, I'm not a believer. And have his life spared. The story is told that when they came to that last man expecting him to reject God, he looked at those terrorists right in the eye and said, I may not have believed before, but now their God is my God. And they killed him. Did that take God by surprise? Did the wickedness and evil of our society in which we live and the world in which we live, and you know, you read about uh, enslavement of individuals and sex slavery and all of the things that take place, God knows. There are passages that speak about God being grieved by the evil that surrounds and, and encompasses this world. God knows. He hears the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. He hears the tumult. He hears, and the sense of outcry there is the sense of the victim crying out, saying, "What? this is unfair, this is wrong, this is evil. And God hears. But also God is thorough in his judgment of evil. One of the most amazing parts of this passage is that which is anthropomorphic. Isn't that a great word? It just means human-like. And in order to express to us just how thorough God is in judging evil, there's an anthropomorphic, there's a human-like activity that God involves himself in. And it's not because he's not omniscient, he knows. But rather as a way to say to Abraham, to say to the world, I will be thorough, I will be just. When there is evil, I will be certain that there is no redeemability in this. So as you read... Verse 20 and on to 21, it says, God says to Abraham, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the turmoil, the outcry, the yelling about it that has reached me. If not, I'll know. I will experientially know. There's almost a sense of incarnation here where God says, I take sin so seriously that I will go into the midst of it to be thorough in my judgment. Now, be careful, because even as God is judging Sodom and Gomorrah, just three chapters before, in Genesis chapter 14, verses 13 and 17, beginning actually in verse 11, he he delivers these kings. 
He cares for them. But at some point, the evil becomes so great. At some point, the evil becomes so unredeemable. At some point, the vileness and the violence and the, all that is taking place becomes so great that God says, enough. Enough. When you watch the genocide of Christians taking place in the Middle East, don't you want God to do something? When you read about 10 and 11 and 12 and 13-year-old girls being abducted from their villages and being forced into relationships that are vile and abusive, don't you cry out and say, God, do something? The other week I was watching a documentary on the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. You watch that. And the vileness and the evil. And you cry out, God, do something. And eventually he does. For you see, God is limited in his long-suffering At some point, when there is no redeemable nature to the situation, God says, enough. When the evil becomes so destructive and so vile, God says, enough. Robin is going through the minor prophets. And one of the themes of the minor prophets is God says, enough. One of those books is the book of Nahum. I'm sure you had your devotions in Nahum this morning. Just to help you out, it's right before Habakkuk. That ought to help you find it. By the way, you know how the Old Testament did those minor prophets? They just called them the Twelve. So instead of having to look up, you know, the little books like Nahum and Habakkuk, and you just look like up, look up chapter, you know, the book of twelve, chapter so and so, made it a lot easier. When you come to the book of Nahum, as God is looking at the nation of Assyria and particularly in the city of Nineveh, God says, "Enough," and He will write this. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But at some point, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. At some point, God says enough. But the question becomes, what is that point? When is that? We see all kinds of evil and violence in our, in our world. We always have. When does God finally say enough? And you realize that is a rare event in Scripture. Somehow we think the God of the Old Testament was this mean God just looking for opportunities to go whack. There are thousands and thousands of years within the book of Genesis, between times when God finally says, enough. He is long-suffering. 
But eventually he says, enough. Now before he does that, though, God lets us know what he's about. One of the interesting things about this passage is that God reveals his judgment to his people. As you read there in Genesis chapter 18, the beginning in verse 16, the people are about to leave. These three men are about to get up and leave, one of them being the Lord and the other two angels. And then there's this conversation that takes place between the three of them. Then the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. One of the things that becomes very clear in this passage is this, that God reveals his plans in response to our shared relationship. That was one of the reasons for the prophets, to let the people know what was coming. That's one of the reasons in the New Testament it speaks about that time when there will be a tribulation, when there will be a pouring out of God's judgment upon the earth when God says, enough. And God's word tells us that. Amos chapter 3, verse 7, surely the Lord does, does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. He lets us know. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, I will let you know. That's why these are so rare. That God does this kind of judgment. And one of the things that I am convinced of is if God is directly judging, whether it's a person, whether it is a nation, whether it is a city, whether it is a culture, the judgment, the reason is right here. We know. One of the things that's so important when you discipline a child is that the child understands what they're being disciplined for. This is the rule you broke. This is what you have done. This is the consequences. God is no different as a father. When he's about to discipline or judge, he disciplines his children. He judges the world. He will let them know what it's all about. The second thing you we come to is we understand there's a reason why God does that. He reveals his plans to provide us with understanding. Abraham is going to struggle with this. God, will you really destroy these cities? God, will you really judge them? God, are you really going to do this? so that Abraham will understand, God says, yes. The next section we will come to, Abraham struggles with God. But what if there's 50 righteous people there? What if there's 45? What if there's 
35. What if there's 30? What if there's 10? God will reveal to Abraham, I am still just, and I am just in these judgments so that we will understand. The third thing we come to understand is this, that God reveals his plan to strengthen us to walk in righteousness and justice. There are so many times that I see things in the world that I say, God, it's just not right. Why did they get away with that? Why did they not face consequences for that? And what Genesis chapter 18 lets us know is that God will bring about justice. In his time, at his place, so that we can continue to walk in righteousness and justice in our own lives. It's so interesting as God is talking about communicating to Abraham, and the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the answer is no. Why does he not hide? Then you come down to verse 15, I mean, it's verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Why does God reveal his judgment? Why does God reveal that at times he just says enough? Why does God reveal that sometimes it takes a long time, but eventually it's coming in order that we can walk in righteousness and justice? That we will do the right things knowing that God will make all things right. God will let us know. One of the things that used to anger me so much when I was down in New Orleans, and New Orleans had the hurricane come through and the flooding and everything, is all of these national leaders that says, God is judging New Orleans. Now, there were two problems with that. Number one, if God was judging New Orleans, he missed. Because the most decadent and vile part of New Orleans is the French Quarter. Do you know the part that did not flood at all? The French Quarter. But secondly, we're not talking here about natural disasters that come and God allowing those things in a fallen world to to invade cities and to invade countries and to invade all of that kind of thing. That takes place. God will use those for his glory. This is direct divine judgment. And when God is judging, it is right here. I wanted to say to those national leaders, did God tell you he was judging? Now, if they would have said yes, then I would have called them liars anyway. But God doesn't work like that. God lets us know when he's about to take care of evil. He reveals it. He reveals it in his word. But finally, God regulates his judgment in response to the presence of his righteous people. Have you ever heard anybody say this phrase? God will have to judge America or he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You ever heard that? I have many times. Usually said by a Christian, 
usually said in condemnation to the culture that surrounds them. And usually said with absolute ignorance. Because what they fail to understand is they are not indicting the culture. They're indicting themselves. In Genesis chapter 18, the problem was not the sin of the sinners. It was the failure of the righteous. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to hear Tony Evans speak on this passage. And one of the things that he did that was so wonderful and so clear is he said, this passage brings about a responsibility on God's people for their failure. The failure of the righteous is what brought this moment of judgment. How do I know that? Well, first of all, as you continue to read down from verse 22 and on, there's this interaction that takes place between God and Abraham. As the man are turning away, Abraham begins to talk to the Lord. And he says there in verse 23, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place? Now notice the phrase, for the sake of 50 righteous people. And the Lord says, if there's even 50, I will spare the city. Abraham comes to God and says, God, Be just. What if there's 50 righteous people there? And God says, in response to your concern, Abraham, I will spare the cities for 50 righteous people. He goes on. Continues. And what we begin to understand is this, that God regulates his judgment in response to the presence of his people even when they are the minority. There's this wonderful interaction that takes place. And so as you continue to read down through verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again. Now, Lord, if I have been so bold to speak, what about if there's instead of 50, what if there's 45? And God says, I'll spare the city for 45. He becomes bold again, and he says in verse 29, what if there's 40? And God says, I'll spare the city for 40. He becomes bold again, and now he jumps it by 10. What if there's 30? God says, I'll spare it for 30. What if there's 20? God says, I'll spare it for 20. What if there's 10? 10. Righteous people. In what would have been a city of maybe tens of thousands. And not even ten could be found. As you read through the passage, God's 
righteous people, meaning those who have a relationship with him and are called to live lives of justice, are called to have lives that impact other people and draw them towards that relationship with God, that speak and and lead them to that relationship with God. It becomes very, very clear that Lot and his family failed. For not even ten righteous people could be found in the city. God's regulation of his judgment places a responsibility upon his people to impact others for him. What if Lot and his family had just had impact on one other family? What if their righteous life had just impacted one other, even their son-in-law's? there would have been a very different outcome. Now, I can't speak for God, and, you know, the what-ifs and all that are very, very difficult. But what becomes clear is that God's righteous and just people failed to have any impact on the society whatsoever. The judgment came not in response to the fault of the sinner, The timing of this judgment was because of the failure of the righteous. One of the questions we ask of Grace Community Church is this. If God removed us from this place, would anybody notice? Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is we begin to define the church in terms of this building. And I'm not sure if God removed this building from this location where we are bordered on one side with the Philadelphia Sports Club, bordered on another side by a warehouse, bordered. It's difficult to be a community church, a neighborhood church. But the church is not this building. The church is you and me. Can I phrase the question a little bit differently? What if God removed you from your family, from your neighborhood, from your work, from your school? Would it make any difference in terms of God's righteousness? Do you make it the purpose of your life as God's ambassador, as God's representative, to impact your family, to impact your school, to impact your neighborhood, to impact the place where you work in order that you might represent Christ, that you might represent the righteousness and the justice and the goodness of God? That you might have an impact for The failure of Genesis chapter 18, in terms of its timing, is not Sodom and Gomorrah. It's God's righteous and covenant people who failed to have any impact on the place where God had placed them. And the judgment came.
Last weekend, I had opportunity to be over in Dallas. And one of the churches over there, I just was overwhelmed by their thought and the idea that they had. Their whole idea is that each person that comes to that church, each person that's a member of that church, is seen as a full-time minister, a full-time missionary, to whatever part of Dallas they find themselves. And so the the body seeks to find a way to have an impact in their community, in their neighborhoods. They invite in their neighbors. They cut their neighbor's grass. They, they do the things for their neighbors. And they say, this is a representative of Christ's love for you. They sit down and they build relationships with one another in order that they might, might use that relationship and the telling of the story to tell about the story of Jesus in their own lives. They drive by a homeless. I was talking to one couple. They drove by a homeless guy, started interacting with him. Several weeks later, he was living in their house as they were trying to take care of him. And not all of it works out well. There was another couple that brought a, a woman into their home that someone had said they're homeless, they need a home, and you know, the woman ended up stealing $1,000. But you know what was so cool? This couple saw it as an opportunity to show grace and mercy. And to say, we want to tell you about God's forgiveness and God's love. Beloved, I want grace to become a church like that. So that if God removed the church, the world would say, what just happened? When you read Genesis chapter 18 and the failure of the righteous, it places a call upon our lives, not not by guilt, but by a desire to impact the world for our Savior. So that if God were to come, and say for the sake of ten, there would be plenty to fill in those roles. As we become available to have an impact where God has placed us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that we see here. Thank you for the grace of our God. Yes, Lord, you do judge Yes, Lord, there's a point where you say enough. Father, you let your people know you. Allow us to understand what you are doing in order that we might live righteously and just. Father, you allow us to have an impact in the spheres in which we influence an impact for you. Let we take that responsibility seriously. Might we understand that because of the presence of your people, your mercy and grace continues to be poured out upon the multitude. Father, it begins with a relationship with you, and each Sunday morning we invite any.
who don't know you as their Savior, who don't know what that means, to, they're not certain whether their sins are forgiven or that they stand right before you to come and speak to me or someone else, to know for certain that that relationship exists. Father, for those of us who know that relationship, help us to live it out in a way that impacts our world for your grace, for your glory, for your honor, for your kingdom. And we pray it in the name of your Son. Amen.